Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's October the 22nd, 2021. Uh, yesterday, if you were watching, I hope you're always watching me on the internet, I had Sebastian Junger on the show uh, talking about the issue of freedom and community. He has a new book out called Freedom, um, and it's a book about how he became free, in a sense, by becoming a nomad in contemporary America for a few months. He, he walked the railroad tracks of the East Coast, going back to, I guess, a nomadic life, a pre-American or at least a pre-settler life. Um, I joked with uh, Sebastian that there's a strong Rousseauan element, I think, to his thinking and his work. Uh, Rousseau, of course, was uh, the 18th century philosopher of being born free and then being in chains because of civilization. Uh, Rousseau famously wrote in his Discourses on Inequality, the first person who, having enclosed the plot of land, took it in his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. Um, Rousseau, of course, was a great critic of civil society and the injustices of civil society. And it's no coincidence that the settler colonialism of, mm -hmm. perpetrated by the British and the French in North America, in Australia, uh, in Latin America, uh, was coming at about a time uh, when Rousseau became such a preeminent thinker. Uh, land is important, of course. Uh, a few months ago, I had the, the writer, best-selling writer, Simon Winchester on the show, who has uh, a new book out called, appropriate enough, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. And... Um, and Winchester dedicates the book to mm. Chief Standing Bear. Uh, and, and the inscription says in the book, in 1879, the U.S. government declared this Ponca chief, Ponca being the Indian, the Native American uh, tribe in which he was the chief, to be a person under the law. But they still took away his lands. What, of course, Winchester is talking about is one of the great criminal acts in history, settler colonialism that appropriated the land of men like uh, Chief Standing Bear. We have a new book out about this now, uh, a book about how we should rethink these crimes of the past. The book is called After 100 Winters in Search of Reconciliation in America's Stolen Lands, and it's by... Um, a historian based in Nebraska, Margaret D. Jacobs, who is joining me from Le Nebraska. Uh, mm -hmm. Margaret, before we get on to the book, and, it, and it's a really important and interesting book, uh, any thoughts on Junger's attempt to go back before the foundations of America to retrieve that nomadic past? Is this going to become... Uh, fashionable? Is it something that speaks of our longing to go back before these terrible criminal injustices of the past? Well, I, I regret that I haven't read Sebastian Younger's uh, new book yet, but 
This is actually something people have been doing a really long time in American history. My wonderful colleague, Phil Deloria, uh, who's uh, uh, a professor of history at Harvard University, wrote a book many years ago called Playing Indian. And um, it's about this impulse that a lot of settlers have had to try to recover this uh, life of that they imagined American Indians were like a long time ago. And of course, you know, somebody like Henry David Thoreau, you could look in uh, ha having a sort of similar impulse. My very first book that I published back in 19, I think it was 1997, um, was also about a kind of group of Bohemians in the early 20th century who really admired American Indian culture and wanted to kind of emulate it. And uh, so it's kind of a long tradition in the United States uh, for settlers to to want to do that, who who both appreciate but also romanticize American Indian. Right, culture. it's that romanticization. I actually, um, I talked a little bit to um, Juncker about, um, uh, about uh, Thoreau. We had David Gessner, another oh, very yes. good American historian on the show who who has a new book out in which he separates himself from his youthful adoration of Thoreau. Where do you stand on particularly men? And of course, they, they do tend to be men who, who idealize nature in this 19th century context like Thoreau and Emerson. Are you like Gessner and increasingly questioning them? Well, again, I haven't read Gessner either, but... Um, uh, you know, in some ways, I think it's a, a an important impulse to track because um, it's it kind of opens itself to some mockery and maybe ridicule. But on the other hand, I mean, I think it's a great alternative to the other impulse that so many settlers had, which was let's eradicate, let's eliminate American Indians, let's not learn anything about them, let's not appreciate anything about them. So I guess uh, my take on it would be more that um, it's a start, that kind of admiration, that kind of romanticization, it has problems, but it also is an entree for non-Indigenous people to start to appreciate what Indigenous people have to offer. So I guess that would be more my take on it. You're very generous, Margaret. Um, <laughs> Your book is also quite generous. It, it, it's a book about these great crimes of the past in part, but it's more of a book about reconciliation. You do write, though, about these terrible massacres of the past and the crimes of the settler colonialists in America, the Bear River. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know much about this, but I picked it up from the book. The Bear River Massacre, the Sand Creek Massacre, the Wounded Knee Massacre, many other massacres. And that's mm -hmm. aside from simply the appropriation of land, of culture, of bodies, of sex. Um, I, I don't want to sound cheap here because it's a very serious subject. But when it comes to the crimes of the past, where does this stuff rank? Is it up there with the worst crimes? Mm. Oh, I would say so. I In the book, I talk about uh, the dispossession of American Indians as one of the founding crimes of the United States, uh, along with slavery. Um, and I don't think we should ever get into kind of ranking. How yeah, I didn't mean it in that sense. It's too work. serious a subject to say this is yeah. worse than something else. 
And I think that, you know, the dispossession of American Indians from their land went hand in hand with slavery because as uh, white settlers came in and displaced American Indians from their land, removed uh, American Indians from their land, this made possible the expansion of slavery. Um, so um, I think these are just two interrelated foundational crimes. And I, I use that term uh, rather than some people use the term original sin to talk about slavery or sometimes uh, about the dispossession of American Indians. But I don't think we should call it that. I think we should call it a foundational crime. And the reason is that I think when we use that term original sin, um, we, we can kind of excuse ourselves, right? We can say, everybody has that. If you're from a Christian or Judeo-Christian tradition, you can say, oh, we're born with that. We can't help it. But these were crimes and people could help it. And there were people in the past who recognized them as crimes and recognized the unjust nature of what was happening and actually tried to stop it um, and failed, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and so, or at least they, they failed for a time. Um, and so I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't just sort of dismiss them as an original sin of some sort. I know that's a metaphor, but I, I yeah, think, so I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've fallen into that metaphor. trap. So, so what we're talking about, you're saying foundational crimes. The other mm -hmm. foundational crime, of course, Margaret, as you suggested, was the crime of slavery. Earlier today, I interviewed, uh, WL. W. Ralph Eubanks. He has a, a wonderful new book out, A Place Like Mississippi. And in a place like Mississippi, there's only, of course, one Mississippi. There was the, the, these two foundational crimes of the appropriation of Native American land and the peoples and slavery were very much mixed together. Uh, the Eubanks book is all about memory. Your book also, in a different way, you're not a literary writer, you're a historian. But you're also, this is a book about remembering, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. It's about um, also how we erase memories. Um, for example, one of the topics I write about uh, is the Sand Creek Massacre. And I, a lot of people have written about that. And I didn't set out to write about it. But in the process of writing this book, I decided that it was really important that I not only write as an aloof historian about uh, the past and about truth and reconciliation efforts, but that I also, one of the things I learned from one of the people I interviewed was how important it is for people like myself, I'm a settler, I'm not indigenous, that we settlers really need to become deeply familiar with the places where we have settled. And so I grew up in Colorado and I thought, you know, I really wanted to dive deep into what it was like to grow up there. Um, and so I decided to write about the history of Colorado and the fact that I learned nothing about it as a child. All I learned were the kind of mythological things about the state. I learned about, you know, miners, plucky miners. I learned about, you know, even the way that they talked about prostitutes. It was like, oh, they're, you know, like, dance hall girls they're happy uh and we you know it's like uh, mccabe yeah. it's it's the altman movie mccabe and mrs miller exactly so that's that's what i learned that's what passed for history when i was growing up 
learned nothing about the Sand Creek Massacre until I was getting a PhD in, in the history of the American West. And um, so I decided to really write about it um, from the perspective of, of somebody who's just coming to this fresh and also to write about how after the massacre, there was a really uh, concerted effort to cover it up, to erase it from the memory of the state. And that's so still it's forgetting going again. on. So memory is so central in all this. One thing, yeah. And Margaret, it's still going on in the state. I mean, um, right. there's a force of people who are trying to make sure it gets taught in the schools. Uh, the, the Cheyenne and Arapaho people, both the Northern and the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho people, they have a commemorative spirit run every year from the site of the massacre to the, to the steps of the Capitol in Denver. They're trying to keep this memory alive. Uh, they're trying to educate people about it. Uh, and, but then there's this backlash of people who- Right, you have this sort of imaginary exchange with- mm -hmm skeptics or people who just don't want to know about this stuff and don't want to talk about it. So let me be one of those people and say, oh, well, this was before I came and every 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 settler society uh, commits crimes. And what can you do anyway? So how would you respond to all those three, Margaret? OK, the first one, this this happened before I came. You know, yeah, that's true. And I call I call I use the term settlers throughout the book for all non-Indigenous people who are living even now on native land. Um, and I use that term because uh, even, if, even if I particularly, or even if my own ancestors weren't even here at the time and didn't commit these crimes, I'm still benefiting from it. You know, I'm still benefiting from the fact that this land was taken from Indian people. For, so for example, I teach at the University of Nebraska and the University of Nebraska is a land grant institution and land grant institutions are built on Indian land. They have investments still on which they're making money from Indian land. Um, and so even if I never committed these crimes or even if you didn't, um, if we're living here, we're benefiting from the fact that this land was taken from indigenous people. So that's my first response. You're going to have to remind me of the next two questions, though. Well, the, the question is, uh, everyone always does that. You know, every, every society is based on, on on what you called earlier, the an original sin, and we all move on from that. Yeah, um, the, a, a kind of corollary to that that I hear a lot is, well, we can't judge people from the past on our standards today. Right, exactly. They didn't know any better then, or, um, you know, everybody was doing it then. But that is simply not true. I mean, we historians call that the man of his times argument. Like, you, you know, that everybody of that time, you know, that's what they did. And we can't impose our views today on the past. But that is not true. When you look historically, there were people who were speaking out and uh, I mean, there were non-Indigenous people speaking out against these crimes as they were occurring. And I, I focus a lot in the book on some of those people, uh, in particular, one named Helen Hunt Jackson, who became aware from the speaking tour of Standing Bear on the East Coast of these horrific crimes that occurred against his people, the Ponca. She became aware of what was happening in Colorado with the Sand Creek Massacre. 
and she wrote about all these things. She, she like had like a one woman campaign to hold the government accountable for what it was doing. So that argument just does not hold up. There I wonder if there's another argument you could also make in response, because we've all had these arguments time and time again, and they get a bit boring. We had the New York University professor, David Stasevage on the show, who has a new book out called The Decline and Rise of Democracy, a global history of from antiquity to today, in which he argues that many of our modern ideas of democracy we borrowed or took from uh, native societies. So mm -hmm. rather than, shall we say, orientalizing these people and suggesting they're utterly foreign to us, we need to understand that many of the things we most cherish were in some way or form taken from them. Wow. I really want to read that book now. Um, uh, but... Well, you'll have to read it. It's a, good, it's a really interesting book. I think you'll, you'll find... Um, You'll find it very compelling. The, the core of the of your book, uh, Margaret, is um, is reconciliation, mm -hmm. and you make the note, and it's a very depressing observation, which comes up time and time again in this show. Unfortunately, is the exceptionalism of America, because you write about um, uh, what the Canadians are doing in terms of mm -hmm. a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, you write about what the New Zealanders are doing, um, yes. what the Australians are doing. Um, and yet when it comes to America, uh, here's a, a headline, does America need a truth and reconciliation commission? I think you would, of course, say yes. Mm -hmm. Americans are exceptional. Why? Why are Americans so bad at coming to terms with the, the, the mm -hmm. obvious realization that, these were crimes and that we need to reconcile. Gosh, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. And that's kind of where I started with this book is why, why are Americans not doing this? And I get asked that a lot. And I, I thought maybe I'd figure that out in the course of this book. And I, I really did not. Um, however, the book is more about um, what is going on in the U S is there anything going on? And what really surprised me in working on this book is that we may not have a lot going on at the national level up here, but we have a huge amount going on at the kind of local and grassroots level. Um, and it's it really inspired me when I started to learn about right. It. And you begin the book with um, with a wonderful story about what's happening. Um, uh, in Nebraska itself, the return of, of, of land to the Ponca tribe, the very Ponca tribe that, um, uh, that Simon Winchester dedicates uh, his book uh, to Chief Standing Bear. So, so what's happening in Nebraska on the local level when it comes to reconciliation and, and recognizing the crimes of the past? Yeah, I'm really grateful you just showed that uh, photograph on um on the, the broadcast here, because um, I don't think most Americans think when they think truth and reconciliation in the United States, they probably don't think of Nebraska, but there's a lot going on here. There's many uh, landowners in Nebraska, white settler landowners who've decided to return land to native people. And I'm not talking about huge, huge amounts of land, just small amounts, but these are um, they may not be huge in the amount of land, but they're significant in the meaning that they have uh, 
in this return. So for example, uh, to, to talk about the Ponca case, uh, there's a farm, white farm family named Art and Helen Tanderup and Helen's right. uh, family. And had this is the story. There's some, mm -hmm. some headlines from this story. Uh, uh, the Tanderups yes. really, I, I didn't know anything about it. It's a remarkable story. Yes. And um, they, Helen's uh, family were homesteaders and this, this home has been in there and this property has been in their family for many years. And, um, you may and your listeners may know that um, several years ago, uh, a Canadian uh, company tried to establish a pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline across the state of Nebraska and many other states to go down to the Gulf of Mexico. And um, many landowners in Nebraska were quite upset about this, including the Tanderups, because this would you know, bisect their land and it would potentially pollute the Ogallala Aquifer, which runs under the state of Nebraska and is a really important source of water for the state, for the whole country, really. And um, so the Tanderups became really upset about this, and they allied with a lot of uh, tribes in the region who were also upset about this. And over time, they became very close friends with a number of Ponca people, and uh, one of these was a man named Mikasi Horonek. And Mikasi is from the Southern Ponca tribe. Uh, there's also a Northern Ponca group uh, based here in Nebraska. And anyway, Mikasi and Art became super close friends. And Mikasi at one point asked Art Tanderup if it would ever be possible to grow a sacred traditional Ponca corn on the land on Art's farm. And Art told us, he said immediately, he said, yes, of course we can do that. And then uh, the Ponca had to find some of these old seeds and they did and they brought them and they, they planted them. And this has been going on since 2013. And then in 2018, Art and Helen decided to give back the, the land that the Ponca had been planting all these years. And eventually it was up to 10 acres of land that they returned to the Ponca people. Um, so this does not garner national headlines. Um, and, and this is not the only case that we document or that I document in the book. Um, another landowner named Roger Welsh, who's German American, has some land in a, in a little town called Dannebrog, Nebraska. And he returned 60 acres of land to the Pawnee people. The Pawnee people were also like the Ponca, they were forcibly ousted from the state in the 1870s. And um, they have now, you know, they have a place back here in Nebraska where they can come to rebury ancestors that have been repatriated to them. They have a place to perform ceremonies and they've established really close relationships. What, with what, uh, Margaret, what, uh, I know you've, you've studied what's happened What's happening in Australia when it comes to reconciliation, New Zealand and uh, yes. Canada? These are the models in some ways of, um, of, of, of reconciliation for the, these foundational crimes. Mm -hmm. um, what impact does it have on the, on the broader culture? You mean the the big national efforts or these more grassroots efforts? No, the national efforts. I mean, <laughs> I, I assume this stuff gets taught in schools. Um, 
are, are you seeing how, how does reconciliation on this sort of macro political level how does it filter down how does it get translated on a broader cultural level particularly from the point of view of the native peoples who um who usually find themselves in positions of um of of, of socioeconomic uh, inequality well i think that's such a good question and when i started this project i tended to assume that if they'd had these broad huge national reconciliation projects that they would have filtered down and that it would have this huge impact. And, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, in Australia, it has kind of worked out that way in a strange way because when Australia went through its um, stolen generations inquiry and when they had a decade for reconciliation, there was a big push for the government to apologize to Aboriginal people in Australia and the prime minister at the time, John Howard, refused to apologize. He refused to apologize for all these indigenous children who were taken from their families. Um, and it actually led to this massive grassroots movement for reconciliation there. And I think it did lead to a really broad transformation of Australian culture. Not to say that there's not people who disagree with this or there's a backlash, but, but there was a lot of uh, buy-in, uh, or I would say settlers started to really own this process at the local grassroots level. But in Canada, um, I know from some of my colleagues and friends up there who've worked on their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there's been a, some frustration because they feel like um, settlers can kind of just be distant from this process and not get involved. And they've been, uh, since their Truth and Reconciliation Commission finished its work in 2016, there has been really some effort from all sectors of Canadian society to make this real, um, to take the recommendations of their commission and implement them across everything from airports to universities, uh, to all sorts of corporations and nonprofit organizations. But um, I think it's it was hard for them to get that kind of settler buy-in. And the say I learned the same thing in New Zealand from a lot of my friends there, that they have a really robust process whereby uh, Maori people can bring their grievances and their claims to the Treaty of Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal. Uh, but I'm not sure that everyday settlers have really um, transform their behavior uh, or their actions and, and attitudes. Um, but um, so it, again, like at first I thought the U.S. is so behind uh, and we are at the national level, but there's a lot going on at the grassroots so level. So you don't believe that this should, this should be driven by a, a, a top-down thing? I mean, do we need a an American Mandela <laughs> to lead the reconciliation. I mean, obviously, that's what South Africa had mm -hmm. or has, although even, you know, truth and reconciliation, the commission in South Africa is also controversial, and not entirely successful. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that um, my my ultimate takeaway from it all is that we need it at every level because I do think we need a kind of national discussion on this and a, a national reckoning, a public apology, 
lots of, we need the resources of the federal government. Um, but I also think it's really important to have people doing it in their local communities and doing it wherever they are. You know, so I try to do it at my university. I try. And to of do course, it you do community. it in your book, Margaret. This book, after one hundred winters in search of reconciliation on America's stolen land, it's an important book because I mean there are other books about it, but you, for certainly for someone like myself, you really educate, inform people the parameters of the debate about what happened in the past, the criminality of the past and the need for reconciliation. I think you do an excellent job. Mm -hmm. And I think your your anecdotes about what's happening in uh, Nebraska, I didn't know anything about this, as you mm -hmm. say, it's not very well known, is really important and interesting and shows it can work at the local level. So congratulations, mm -hmm. I think the book is just out. Congratulations on the book, Margaret. Uh, what else should people be reading in these odd times? You're talking to me mm -hmm. from Nebraska, a place of both Hope and perhaps reconciliation. What other books are on your bedside table? Well, um, I tend to read a lot of fiction uh, for fun because uh, I read so much nonfiction for my work. So I would really recommend anything written by Louise Erdrich. She's a Turtle Mountain Chippewa writer based in Minneapolis, and she has a wonderful bookstore there too. Um, but her latest book is called The Night Watchman, and she just explores so many aspects of indigenous life and history through her novels. And The Night Watchman, I believe, is about her own grandfather and his uh, work to try to stop the termination of her tribe, the Turtle Mountain Chippewa. It's a wonderful book. Um, I did mention to you that a book I've really enjoyed reading for my own research for this book was uh, by Susan Nieman or Nyman uh, called Learning from the Germans. It's an, an amazing book that's also about these same questions of reconciliation, but she's looking at comparing what happened, how Germany has reckoned with its past with how the American South is is trying to reckon with yeah, it. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it sort of ties in with the conversation I had with, with Eubanks earlier today. And perhaps it also speaks, America is trying to change, to reinvent itself. It's struggling to innovate in some ways. I mean, it's in some ways the center of global innovation, in some ways a laggard. And perhaps the arguments you make in uh, After 100 Winters in Search of Reconciliation in America's uh, stolen lands would also be a way for America to reinvent itself, to become an innovator again. Uh, Margaret uh, D. Jacobs, congratulations on the book. Thank you again. A uh, really important and interesting conversation about uh, stuff that we may not want to talk about, but we need to. So keep well and keep, keep reminding us of this. We need people like you, Margaret. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.